0: everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very exciting guests, Bill Tai, Derek Zhu. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, honored to be here. Thanks, Uh, Eric. Great to be here as well. I thought we could begin with some introductions. Bill, perhaps you could start, say a little bit about yourself, what you're most focused on right now uh, in the blockchain space and where you're most excited.
1: Yeah, my background, I started as a silicon chip designer actually in the 80s, ended up going into the venture capital in 1991. So I've been doing this for almost a quarter century. Somehow started mining Bitcoin around 2009 on the board of Bitfury, chairman of the board of HUD 8 Mining, and basically been involved in kind of investing in Bitcoin blockchain for about. I guess, five, five or six years now. Focused on a lot of stuff. And there's so much going on in this space. It's hard to have a singular point of focus.
0: Yeah, you had this legendary tweet that was, uh, hey, what did it say? The Bitcoin thing is pretty cool. And who's using it. That's it.
1: Yeah, 2010. It was actually that the backstory there. I was Alan Greenspan Gollum in Second Life in 2000, 2001. And because of that, people sent me the Bitcoin white paper pretty much when it came out. And it literally sat in my basket for a year before I opened it. And then I just downloaded the miner and started trying it. And I got hooked about a year later. So Thanksgiving weekend of 2010, I tweeted, looking for companionship. I think I, it said something like, that it looked it looked like it had a lot of potential. Is anyone else out there mining?
0: And, and did anyone answer?
1: Who no. Were they? Not at the time. It took a while. It, it, it now has a lot of clicks. <laughs> but <laughs> it, was, it was basically like shouting into a, an empty dating site for okay. a years. That tweet is aged well. <laughs> yes. Derek,
0: can you introduce yourself and what you're most excited about right now?
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I've been in the crypto space for around two to three years. My first heard about Bitcoin and started looking at it when I was at school at Penn. And in the past year, I've, I've entered the space full time. I now work at Blockchain Capital, and then I've spent a lot of time recently on looking at the mining ecosystem. So, looking at like the development of ASIC resistant coins. Development of like newer newer ASICs for both Bitcoin and altcoins, and then looking at the mining landscape as a whole. I think it's definitely undergoing some interesting changes right now and in the near future. I've also spent some time looking at the privacy coins and the and the different privacy technologies that are that are being worked on. And I right now I'm super excited about some of the some of the newer privacy technologies like Mimblewimble, Grin some of the Starkware stuff, and then I think Zcash is another project that I'm looking at.
0: Derek, well, let's start with mining. Why don't you give sort of a brief survey of how you see the landscape right now, you know, Bitmain IPO, obviously, in the news, and that could sort of segue into, into Bill's experience with, with Bitfury.
2: Yeah, definitely. So I think that the mining landscape for the, the past year, and past pretty much two years, has been super profitable, Right. Prices have gone up so much, like margins have been super fat. And now people are, for the, and then in late 2017 and early 2018, a lot of miners were rushing to get online to help to just make a lot of money. So I think that a lot of new operations have gone online in the, in the last year. But now I think we're in a more compressionary phase where prices have gone down, hash rate has gone up. So I think that margins are sort of compressing and we could be sort of in the middle and like entering another mining winter, similar to the 2014-2015 one. So I think a lot of interesting things are happening. Another interesting recent trend is for the first time, some of the altcoin chains, such as Monero and even Ethereum to some extent, though I wouldn't really Don't know if I I could call it an altcoin. They've been, they're now profitable enough and large enough to support specialized hardware. So ASICs. So I think there's been a lot of activity and discussion around like ASIC resistance and the development of of ASICs by like, by mining companies. So I think that's another trend I'm, I'm, I'm keeping an eye out for.
0: Bill, I guess. With the Bitmain uh, IPO right now happening, how do you view the the landscape right now in mining?
1: I, I think Derek pretty much nailed it. I think it's like any business where the the business model is effectively capital, you know, capital facilities, where the marginal cost of your product is, if you do it right, nil, and where supply comes on in chunks. You have swings in prices. Semiconductor memory, plain old, you know, DRAM. Was like that for many decades in the 80s and 90s until it shook out. And I think from a, I think because I I literally grew up in that business in, in you know starting in companies that had semiconductor fabs. And I've always been a voice of reason <laughs> within our community at Bitfury, where all we focus on is operational efficiency. And I think Derek pointed out exactly what happened, which is. As prices started to rise in the third, particularly in the third and fourth quarters of last year, a lot of capacity came online. And that that obviously made the network difficulty higher and anyone's relative you know, share or any unit that you had out there mining became a smaller part. Of a more competitive network, so profitability has come down for for a lot of players. We've publicly stated, you know, at Bitfury and, and HUD 8 Mining that our break-even cost, marginal cost, is somewhere around two to three thousand dollars a Bitcoin. So we're totally fine. But I think many players in both the early days of the semiconductor business and the Bitcoin and mining industries now basically head faked themselves and just rushed into the market, paying as you know, as really paying anything, paying overpaying for equipment just to get it online, and maybe weren't as as picky as they should have been on electricity cost. So I think the result of the six month updraft that we had at the end of the year was that hash rate almost I I've got to look at the exact numbers, but it almost doubled in a seven, eight month period. A lot of the equipment that got ordered when Bitcoin was fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a coin was basically getting delivered a few months ago. And so some of it is coming online now, and people are figuring out that they're not profitable. At DUT8, which is a company that was basically partially backed by Bitfury, largely backed by Bitfury, we, we were able to basically get our capacity up in Canada online, and we took the company public on the Toronto Exchange. We have reported numbers, and we're doing quite well. We get offered Uh, basically data centers full of Bitmain equipment pretty much for, you know, nearly free because I think people took so much equipment down and plugged it in and found out that they're just losing money. So we're at a point now where people are trying to ditch their facilities because they can't can't take the pain anymore of just losing money every month in size. So I think, you know, things are going to shake out pretty quickly, I think, and we'll return to some sense of normalcy I, I hope by year end we'll see where it goes.
2: And, and Bill, so w- w- I was, I'm curious about your thoughts on like the the trend of mining companies going public. So I'm talking about like Canaan, eBay, and obviously Bitmain. Because yeah. from my perspective, I, I've taken a, a close look at these and it sort of seems like a defensive move, which seems a bit contrary to, to going public. But like mining companies now, are anticipating this this winter and know that they that the industry might might have compressed margins and might even lose money for certain operations so they they need to raise money to ha- just have it on the calendar street and be able to to survive this this battle of attrition
1: like how are you sort of I think you're right I think you you've nailed it again because I think uh, let's take you know bitmain in, in particular so this phase of the industry reminds me a bit if you guys aren't old enough for this but as the PC business started to emerge as a large somewhat commodity business you had in the PC space a couple of really interesting well managed upstarts like Compaq and Dell and then you had some wild growers that would basically do everything in a what seemed to be a little bit of an unfocused way they covered sort of surface area of a rising tide like and companies like that were like Everex And Bitmain reminds me a little bit of that. My hat's off to them because they were aggressive and they do execute really well and they execute really quickly on whatever initiatives they undertake. But I think what that's produced is a a business model that is a a little bit of be all things to all people at the same time. And as long as the tide is rising, business models like that, they capture more surface areas, so they're good. But if things start to contract, which is where we are, you you end up with pieces of your business that are you know kind of in trouble a little bit here and there, and I don't have my hands on their PNL, and they're careful, I think, not to show uh, too much information to competitors like Bitfury. But my observation is that they were a great beneficiary of the rising prices in many ways, as we all were. But they took a lot of orders for equipment and weren't particularly careful, I think, about you know the economics or being careful of their customers, and I think they took they they had very very large orders in the third and fourth quarters of last year that they delivered to already and what i see in the kind of the reddit threads and public forums is that their revenue has contracted significantly uh, in that in that business and i think every miner than their own mining operations has also contracted because of price so i think and then they they also have the additional complexity of having started the, the effort around Bitcoin cash. And I think, you know, the Reddit threads are pretty clear about what the community out there thinks is happening, which is they've basically been having to sell off what should have been good working capital for them in the form of, in the form of Bitcoin to, to prop up or provide Bitcoin cash with liquidity. So I think they have, they're fighting a war on multiple fronts, which is always harder in a downturn. Than when there's a rising tide, and so I think the defensiveness is I think that's a that's maybe a, a, euf- a euphemism for survival, you know. Because I think I've seen some estimates that they've burned through nine hundred million dollars of cash in the last six months, you know, and and despite their position in the industry, it's hard to absorb that. Bitcoin mining, while it quote prints money, it prints cryptocurrency money. It doesn't print fiat capital, and from our position, I know that every time we've had to undertake a major expansion of capital, of facilities and acquire you know, new electricity, we have had to go out and get fiat capital because we've been piling up Bitcoin, but semiconductor fabs and electricity companies generally do not accept Bitcoin. So we've had to sell, at, sell our coins at times to get enough cash to keep going. So I think the bigger you get, the harder it is in terms of the scale of capital in the start, it's kind of like riding a little bicycle and you see a pothole, you just go around it. You know, pretty soon you're you're driving a a, a freight train on a track <laughs> and you can't get off. And so if there's something in the way, it's you know it's a little hard to navigate those turns if you've got a lot of moving parts.
2: Yeah, no, I, I really like that analogy with like the, the freight train. I think the one interesting thing to keep an eye on is like the Bitcoin cash, the, entire, the huge stash of Bitcoin cash. That, that Bitmain holds, like, will they use the, the money they get from the IPO to help to continue to prop Bitcoin Cash up and continue to, to have another chain to mine on with their SHA-256A6? Or will they sort of understand that it's it's a losing battle, that the community doesn't really seem to support it? And will they cut their losses? I think that's in. I know people who strongly believe in, in both, both theories, so... I think that's something that's, that's really interesting.
1: That's a big question. I think, you know, I, my, again, I'm not, I, I do not know for sure what happened inside Bitmain when they were thinking about uh, coming up with Bitcoin Cash. Uh, I think they, they do have a logical argument that they're solving for some of the things that people would want out of a cryptocurrency in terms of, you know, higher transaction capability and faster speeds and things like that. But my distant view, you know, as a competitor too, is that they basically had an architecture, a silicon architecture, that was wedded to a certain style of mining. And and the fork that was put in place to help increase the capacity of the main chain last fall would have obviated their marginal advantage. And so they needed to come up with something so that they would stay relevant. And and I think, the logical extension of that was to fork Bitcoin in a way that fit exactly their equipment. So, and you see it, you know, they're, they're probably 90% of the mining capacity at times of Bitcoin cash. They, that's, it's their own currency. Just like, you know, if you were Farmville and you had Farmville cash, it's their own (laughs) currency. Interesting. I hadn't, hadn't considered that, that perspective before. Yeah, they had put something in their silicon that most people didn't want to do because it was sort of an unwritten rule that you didn't do it. And they put in something called ASIC boost and the fork would have made their 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 marginal advantage from that not applicable. <laughs> so they needed to do something. And they're competitive. You know, they will take advantage of every marginal advantage they have in front of them, which is what has put them in the position that they're in today.
0: Bill, I'm curious how you must get mining, you know, pitches all the time for, for companies trying to innovate mining, I'm curious, if you weren't in your role at Bitfury in HUD 8, do you think there's an opportunity for, for upstarts to to make a dent in mining, or, or how competitive is mining in general right now?
1: Uh, you know, I think, so by the way, I am, either Bitfury or not, I'm very open to hearing about new technologies, because while it is the case that Bitfury does its own ASIC stuff for Bitcoin, and is looking at, you know, some of the altcoin stuff, we are not wedded Comple- you know, we're, we're not not open to better solutions if they present themselves. The the issue I think that upstarts have today is that the the scale of the game has changed so much. If if I look at the first when I first wrote a check to fund uh, some of the early silicon at at BitFury at fifty five nano. And for those of you that don't know silicon, you have the kind of light switches that are connected together to make patterns of electricity. And the size of the light switch is what you, you hear when you hear 55 nanometer or 28 nanometer or 20 nanometer or 16 nanometer. And the smaller the number, the better, because you can put more on a given physical space. When we did the 55 nanometer chip, the, the mask set, meaning the tooling that you would need to print the circuits was you know around a million bucks or less. And each generation, it's probably gone up by 5 to 7x You know, so if you wanted to do a mask set now at uh, 10 nanometer or seven nanometer, you're going to have to come up with $20 million just to design, just to have the expression of your design. You probably would have had to have silicon designers in place for 18 months and two years at a few million dollars a month. So you're talking another 20. Uh, And then the scale of the game is so big now. When we order silicon, we need to order millions of chips. and so. You're going to have to come up with a check of fifty to one hundred million dollars to to be you know noticed by a semiconductor fab, and so and it's going to like if you decided to start today. So if you add all that up, it's sort of um, start today. Expect in 2020, you might enter the game, and you will have spent 50 million dollars along the way, and hope that it worked. And then you need another hundred at the time you order. But that's if you did today's volume. So by then, I bet you'll need 500 million bucks to get off the ground. And then on top of that, uh, when we are looking for electricity now, sometimes we will look at sites that only have 30 million watts, and they're not worth our time because we need to do 100 to 200 at a time. So an upstart two years from now is probably going to have to take down thousand megawatts at a time just to start and so if you have to do that, plus get the supply chain cranked up, plus get the silicon in line, plus get the stuff made, and then have it all come together in two and a half years, it's probably a six, seven dollars $700, $800 million bet, and you're not sure that it's going to work when it's on. And everyone else is going to be 10 times the size they are today. So I think it's pretty hard if you're going to go into scale mining in Bitcoin. If you're going to do some other stuff, there's probably areas for innovation in some of the altcoins.
2: Yeah, I think just, just going to add real quick to, uh, to Bill's point, I think like there's been a lot of innovation and new companies around mining forming in the last 6 months so like new designs like new mining operations in different parts of the world and we've seen like some of those pitches but as a as as a venture fund it's really tough to invest in these because it's sort of the opposite of software right like with software with just like a few people you can release a product that scales up really really nicely hardware is sort of the exact opposite it's not about like how well you're it's like how well or efficient your machine is like it's just one small part of it even if you're if you even if you create a, an ASIC that's like 40 percent more efficient than your competitor if your competitor has a larger capital base and is willing to spend a lot more they can just sort of outlast you and it just becomes a game of attrition so i think bill's exactly right it it's really tough to to get an efficient venture type return from mining operations unless you're either really early on to a chain or you are just extremely really much better than everyone else at producing hardware. So
1: that's that's sort of how I've been looking at it. I think that's exactly right. Very spot on.
0: Any lessons learned from the Twenty One Co? And I was also sort of, and I was also thinking about Obelisk, which was you know, is David Bork's you know, attempt. What are your thoughts
1: on that? Uh, you know, I, I have to say that the, the 21 Inc. guys, I do respect them. They are, they're really good people. I think what uh, my my observation of what happened there is that they were, they are very smart, academically, incredibly credentialed people. And I think what, what they didn't have going into their ramp was heavy experience in coming out with you know productization of silicon because i think what they did was they were they were super aggressive in trying to use the latest and greatest technology at the time which was 16 nanometer if i recall correctly when the rest of the industry was kind of at 2028 20, and it was a big bet had they been able to deliver the ma- a manufacturable product they might have been a real player today but i think they they took on more risk than others would have taken maybe because they were academically super credentialed, but hadn't been beaten up enough in delivering product. But I think they, they tried, they had a great design, it took a little longer to get out than they thought it would in terms of mask spins. And every time you fail on the hardware like that, it's a $40 million miss. So it just got too expensive to spin the silicon another time.
2: I think in regards to like miners in, in China versus elsewhere, I think, and, and Bill, correct me, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's definitely an advantage to it's much harder to compete if you're not in China. Yes. Um I think if you look at like each part of the mining stack so like the design, the foundry, the actual manufacturing of the ASIC and then like the mining itself like there's all each there's there's big advantages to to being located in China like whether it's just like the foundries are like whether it's like TSMC or or global foundries or or whatever like they're some of those, it's it's much more, it's much easier to be on the ground
0: if you're yeah. in Asia.
1: Yeah, um, I think uh, I think you're right. I think you know Bitmain. So so in 2014 2015, BitFury was probably around 40 percent, maybe higher market share of all all mining capacity in the world. And Bitmain was there. They weren't as big then, but they they I think had the wind at their back in a number of areas that did give them um, competitive advantage. And you named a a lot of the pieces, you know, one, I think there's, there's clearly a need for capital. And I think capital flight has been a part of China for a long time. You know, I think part of the reason real estate prices are what they are in Canada and Vancouver, sorry, in Vancouver and California is there's a lot of people in China that try to get their money out of there and buy real estate. And so some of that was flowing into companies like Bitmain, where capital could get put to work outside of the purview of the government. I think the the cost of electricity, there, there appears to be sort of an artificial subsidy in a way. A lot of the capital accumulation that occurs because of the trade surpluses in China goes towards the building of infrastructure. And there's a number of, you know, you see pictures all the time that guys like Jim Channels put up of empty cities. You know, hundreds of empty cities in China with power plants that are you know, kind of built out and have nothing to feed. And if you are able to access those by paying government officials, sometimes you get power plants for free. So I think Bitmain's had advantage in power costs. They've had lower unit costs in labor. They've had more access to capital. And the, the supply chain for building equipment, a lot of that is obviously in China. So all of these those things I think came together to help them build a dominant position. The government has been over the last couple of years cracking down on people in the cryptocurrency business in in China. So I think I don't know that I I would say the tides have turned, but I think they're it's a little harder to operate now than it used to be over there. I think also One of the things that I worry about from a totally different perspective, but I I have a 501c3, a nonprofit that's focused on ocean conservation and some other things in that area. Big Fury has always had a policy of being green. And it's our belief that in the long term, the marginal cost of the production of electricity, if you're on a fair playing field, is going to be better and be lower cost if it is green. If you think about the marginal cost of taking electricity off of a hydro dam, it's very small. If you have to dig a hole in the ground, take coal out, burn it, clean furnaces, have a supply chain moving that stuff around, it's cheaper to do that at small scale. But if you want to do it at you know hundred megawatt chunks, green energy is cheaper. Bitmain has a lot of coal-fired plants that they you know kind of spew out lots of black smoke in the air to make their bitcoin, and that that's something that I think is not a good thing for this planet long term.
2: Yeah, no, I, that's actually one theory I've heard around. And one defense of of crypto cryptocurrency mining is that it's going to sort of facilitate and and motivate people to find cleaner sources of energy. But I want to go back to an earlier point you made about like Bitmain's like control of the market share and and where that's future headed. From my perspective, I think that we're definitely, as part of that expansionary period of mining that we've seen, there's definitely more competition along every part of the mining stack. I think one really interesting part is the ASIC design part. So it's my understanding that, like, for the past few years, as you move from, like, 100 nanometers to, like, 55 to 28, all of these, there's, there's been huge jump step functions up in terms of efficiency. And in the next year or two, I think we're going to reach a plateau, right? And the, we're hearing about, like, the new 10 nanometer, 7 nanometer machines. And I think any sort of technological edge, at least for, for like Bitcoin mining, will will disappear like slowly, I think, in, in the near term. So I think it'll become more a function of just where can I get cheaper electricity? And like you also said, I think that that policy of, of electricity subsidizing is also slowly coming to an end. And now we're hearing of new operations in, in like Washington, and Texas from Bitmain, and there's a bunch of other smaller ones in in like upstate New York like the Midwest like other parts of Europe so i think that is a, uh, I, I think we're definitely in a in a moment where mining is continuing to become more distributed and decentralized i'm actually writing a piece I'm, my my next piece is actually um, on analyzing this i'm working with Yassine Mandra from Mark Invest, and we're sort of just going to be looking at each part of the stack and sort of how competitive is it, it is, and which direction it's sort of moving towards?
1: No, you fit all the right points because I think the silicon piece is a very fundamental part of being competitive. And what you explained is very true of Bitcoin, and it's also very true of every kind of silicon product that's ever been made. You know, so if you think about the microprocessor business, the jump from 2004 to an 8080 to a 286, those were Mongo. You know, and then the three eighty six and the forty six but then as time went by the the marginal cost of some improvement went up a lot so the price performance continues to move but the cost of getting that incremental performance goes up a lot and I think you're right you know the the move from fifty five to twenty eight to twenty those were huge increases in performance for not that much extra cost and now we're at a point where the cost Any rev is a very high cost and the marginal improvement, you know, there is some, but it's not, it's not like low hanging fruit anymore. And so I think the innovation is now coming in other areas like, you know, kind of the design of the data centers and the airflow and the, the way, the way the machines are cooled and the ability to operate the silicon at, at very cold temperatures uh, as opposed to just innovating on, you know, the number of light switches you can put on a piece of silicon.
2: Definitely, that's that's something that I've been hearing as well. Like, it's no longer, it's like having a better chip design and like placing that the silicon chips is no longer as big a factor. That's obviously still like probably the most important and crucial, but just like optimizing your efficiency. In like the cooling, in like the data center electricity, those are more important than ever before. And those advantages aren't necessarily super, super scalable or, or, or super defensible. So I think that's like a, it's going to continue to be a just finding out where people can optimize in the non design aspect of the, of the mining stack. Mm-hmm. And I, I think another interesting sort of mining topic I've been looking at recently. And Bill, I don't know how much time you you focus spending on on like altcoins, but in the last six months, we've sort of seen this this narrative around like ASIC resistance and altcoins, mm-hmm. and it all sort of started when like the the Bitmain revealed that they had built CryptoNight ASICs, which is Monero's hashing algorithm, and that prompted this whole sort of discussion around should projects try to remain ASIC resist- resistance? And I, I'm not going to go too much into that debate right now, but I think in the past six months, like we've seen a lot of projects that are claiming to be ASIC resistance and, and have tried to, but to no avail, right? It started with Monero. They eventually had to hard fork Zcash a a, a, month, a few months later had their own ordeal and there's been a, there's been newer hardware that's been released recently. And, I don't know the numbers, the details of the of the mining profitability for Zcash right now, but I'm pretty sure that like the GPU, it's no longer profitable at all to mine with your NVIDIA or AMD GPU for, for Zcash. And I also know that for Ethereum, that that's also, GPU mining is probably also in its last few weeks or months combined with like the, the falling price. And there's been like newer ASICs released by, like, you know, Silicon and Bitmain. So like the initial ASICs that Bitmain had, like the E3, those numbers weren't super impressive. And it was like only maybe marginally more efficient than a GPU. But some of the the rumored specs of some of the newer machines, I think, have the potential to to wipe out GPU mining on Ethereum as well, especially if prices keep dropping. So I think one like w- one massive trend in the semiconductor space is like the demand for GPU mining and and GPU units as a whole. I think is is going to start to go down just as it because like you look at the large GPU chains like Zcash, Monero, Ethereum. Those are all under attack from from ASICs. So I think like that's something that. Will be interesting to see how it plays out over the next six to twelve months. And Ethereum is obviously also moving to proof of stake. Uh, I don't know when, like maybe in the next like few months, like next year or two. But that's also going to be interesting to follow.
1: Yeah, this has been an interesting area for for me. All this for many years. You know, I have to say, when uh, in 2014, I did help set up a little test net on Ethereum. A year and a half before it launched, and Vitalik did explain to me personally what he was trying to build, and when when they were raising the money a year and a half later, and what he what he said at the time was he was going to fix you know the main issues that Bitcoin had, and one of the main issues was concentration of mining, and he said well he said he's going to come up with a protocol that is is resistant to ASICs so that the, the chain could be sort of pure to the philosophy of peer-to-peer and anybody could compete as opposed to a handful of silicon designers. And, you know, me being a silicon designer by background and having been on the board of Bitfury already, I kind of, I, I wasn't sure what to think of it. And what, uh, what he explained to me, which made total sense, was that because the Bitcoin algorithm is basically heavy math and small variables, you can take that math expression, write it in Boolean algebra, convert it to transistors, and you can put it on a row of silicon very efficiently. Ethereum, and you know, he designed it to be this way, because it's a, a very small, small math problem and a very big variable that it's quite inefficient to put into silicon because all you're really doing then would be building mostly a memory chip. And so I think when you said that the E3 miner from Bitmain didn't have that much you know, marginal performance advantage. I think that's the reason why, because there's not much you can do with a computation engine to make Ethereum mining any faster. And the the perverse thing that happened that I didn't expect at all was because Ethereum took the silicon design IP out of the equation, all that it left as a competitive variable was cost to electricity. And And so what you saw happen was, you know, Bitcoin is still five or six or seven main players that compete for share. In Ethereum, it's basically two miners are 55%. You know, so what Vitalik wanted to see in a totally distributed system turned out to be more concentrated because it all boiled down to, can you bribe a politician in China with an empty city to give you his power plant for a little bit of money every month? And if you could do that, you win. And so Ethereum, as it turns out, is a more concentrated mining pool. It's a more concentrated ecosystem than Bitcoin. And then I think, you know, there, there are some, there's some risk, I think, when, when, I, when I think about what I'd be willing to do in terms of funding or being part of an ASIC effort in some of the other chains, it's a little dicey to know that you can tune and pay a lot for your silicon and as I described, the the time it takes to come up with a chip and the working capital requirement, building machines, do all that. And then the protocol decides, oh, we don't like that, we're forking. And then everything you did for two and a half years is down the drain. You know, so I think it's 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 a, it's a big bet if you want to go and, and do that. You do see cases like SIA coin when when Bitmain came out with their A3 miner, they actually were excited about it because they weren't one of the main, main coins. So being able to put in the hands of people a little box that could mine to spread the the mining, they liked that. But you saw what Monero did and you described it. They didn't want to see it happen. So, you know, Bitmain comes out with a chip, they come out with a box, and Monero just works it. So now that stuff will work. Yeah, no, I.
2: That's actually a uh, perfect segue into just like the, the sciacoin recent stuff. I don't, there's been some, some drama recently in the Sciacoin like social media networks, the subreddits, but basically like Obelisk had pr- produced some ASICs, but it was revealed that Bitmain had also produced some competitive ASICs as well for, for SciAcoin. So there's right now been talk of a community-supported hard fork to basically sort of invalidate the the Bitmain ASICs and make it profitable to mine on the obelisk ones. Wow. Uh, so I think that's an interesting, another interesting development that that people that I think will continue to gain um, some attention in the next few weeks. But I yeah I, I didn't realize that the by mem- by making the Ethereum ETH hash hashing algorithm so memory bound that you were just making it more susceptible to other methods of centralization, not necessarily in the chip development
1: part. Um, Yeah, just uh, Google, if you just Google search sort of, you know, Ethereum hash rate market share, you'll see it, you know, compare that to Bitcoin. It's a much more concentrated ecosystem.
2: Gotcha. And I I do think that like by making these memory hard algorithms are, they, they make it definitely harder to make an ASIC, but not impossible. And it sort of just raises the bar, and like increases the amount of money necessary, and like the the, the chip design knowledge necessary to sort of produce specialized hardware. And it has an adverse, unwanted effect—a a bad second-order effect—where instead of like just normal, like ASIC manufacturers being able to to create something for this, only the the people with the most capital and the most knowledge can go after like an Ethereum ASIC run. So sure. I think my my sort of opinion on this whole ASIC resistance topic is make your algorithm as simple and as, as cheap as possible and, and as to, to, to try to increase the competition, make the hardware more commoditized, like make it so that people can't get a huge technological or efficiency edge by just like committing more capital.
1: Yeah, I agree with that and I and i I do think there are players you know you mentioned you know silicon they're they're a really good company you know silicon's been around for a long time I think if I'm not mistaken they're out of Taiwan and they're they're a really good silicon company they know what they're doing and I think if you know if anybody can make a, an ASIC that is a little bit better at ethereum mining than others they're probably one of them So I think there are ways to do that, but I think it's going to be my gut, my gut without having looked at the architecture myself is that it's going to be in the way the the memory is the memory handles data. So it's going to be in sort of the, the IO and the interface of the memory to logic or putting them on the same chip so that it's just super fast to feed the data into the computational engine.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think if you go on like this, the social media, um, websites like reddit and like you look at some of the gpu miners when news of some of these newer ethereum asics were came out they were sort of like all right first they came from monero they had to hard fork then they came for for zcash um, and before before all of these it was like coin and dash and like now none of those except for monero are really profitable the only one the only big chain big altcoin chain left is sort of ethereum like once the asics come online for that like where are the gpu is going to go so I think that's going to be a pretty dramatic, dramatic few months when that sort of when the hash rate spikes and it's just unprofitable for GPUs.
1: Yeah, I think you know, and I think the overriding variable is probably going to be price. I mean, it's so it's hard to call because you don't know where price will be. But if the price goes back, if Bitcoin's back up at fifteen to twenty thousand, everything else will have come with it, and everything will be profitable. <laughs> you know, because I think when it was at fifteen to twenty thousand we were able to take five-year-old equipment and plug it in and it was still profitable. So I think GPU sales, if prices spike again, they're going to be fine.
0: Let's, let's zoom out a little bit and, and, and talk about Ethereum. One of the things we, we've talked about and written about in the past is how there's you know, these different narratives, you know, sound money on the one hand and uh, world computer on the other hand. And it seems like recently the world's computer narrative has, has been losing steam with DAP sort of falling out of favor and and Ethereum being the biggest player under under that narrative, and I know you you Bill from our conversations over the past you know year or so have been you know, bearish and then bullish. You know have had ups and downs in your your thinking. Of Ethereum, where are you right now in terms of your latest belief in Ethereum as a as a technology and as a platform and as a project and the world computer narrative more broadly?
1: Yeah, you know, so so I did start out very you know very. I I don't know if I was bearish or just didn't see the need you know, again, when, when Vitalik was raising in 2014, 2015, I think because I was already so involved in Bitcoin, I just didn't see why anyone would bother, you know, and then, and then, and, and I felt actually when they first did their raise, and I think they raised 17 million bucks and launched their token. And then I think if I'm not mistaken, it traded down 40%. I was, oh, I was right, you know, and then and then I was really wrong because then it went from whatever seventy cents to uh, whatever it was to thousands of dollars. And I eventually did get on that train because the thing that I came to realize: if you had been around in the late '80s and early '90s in the uh, kind of the networking standards wars, the the networks that we're all very familiar with today, and you don't even think about anything else, you know, like TCPIP based networks, they were not. The, the dominant force. They, there were other networking technologies like, you know, Novell NetWare and, you know, plain old uh, Unix protocols. And, you know, Microsoft had LAN Manager out there, and IBM had a very efficient architecture called Token Ring. And the performance specs on all of them were better than TCP/IP. And if you look at TCP/IP objectively you could say it's kind of a crappy architecture because every time something doesn't go through, you just retransmit. And then so if the network gets clogged, everything tries to retransmit all the time and then it just self-clogs even more. you know. But for whatever reason, all the developers ended there because it was the most open. And I think that's what I missed in the early days of Ethereum. I didn't, you know, so Vitalik really set out to fix three things. You know, one was, he said, you know, the it, he, he said to me, it's, it doesn't make sense to go into a store and buy a can of soda and wait nine minutes and 59 seconds for a transaction. So I'm going to have a shorter block time. And he did. You know, I think the target might have been 10 seconds originally. Now it's maybe 13. And then he had the objective of, you know, having ASIC resistance. and then And then the last objective was the one that mattered, which was that Bitcoin was too hard to program with. And Bitcoin... It's a little bit like programming an assembly language and DOS, where Ethereum is kind of like, you know, a high level language that anyone that has done an iPhone app can work with. And so it's easier to work with. It does introduce more uh, attack points for hackers, because it's an abstracted language written on top of other stuff. And, and every time you see hacks, they 're not really you know bitcoin protocol has has never been hacked there 's lots of hacks that occur in the ethereum ecosystem. All that said that 's where the developers are and I think there 's so much critical mass in terms of mindshare i don 't see it going away anytime soon, if ever. So I am a fan of ethereum. I think we 're in a downdraft at the moment now anyone you know can guess at what they think it is. I think part of it is kind of the slowdown in ICOs because of the uncertainty around you know SEC regulatory policy. But I don't I don't think it's going away. And I'm quite excited to see with the price down, I, I'm actually tempted to buy it at this you know coming up here because it, it feels like it's it's a temporary downdraft to me. That's what it feels like.
2: Yeah I think this whole Ethereum Ethereum has sort of dominated the a lot of the narrative on on, on like Twitter, Telegram, in the past few weeks. I, I I saw Murad and Arjun Balaji's great podcast in Village Global the other day, and all this discussion around like debunking the Fat Protocol and like talking about whether Ethereum as a as a smart contracting platform can retain value. I think that sort of discussion has definitely reached a a peak and been timed really well with just sort of the price falling now. And I, I do agree with Bill. I think we'll see how this narrative evolves, especially if Bitcoin goes back up and like sort of drags the altcoins with it. I, I think we'll we could start to see some some people start to change their opinions. But I think it'll be interesting to to see that happen. Bill, I, I know that you're also involved in AirSwap and on the board and curious to know a little bit more about um, your involvement in, in that project?
1: Yeah, so I, I have gotten behind only really a handful. I, I'm, I'm kind of a, a fundamentalist by nature, because I've, I think because I've been in venture for too many decades, I can only really get involved in something if I truly believe and I think it can be foundational. And I got behind Power Ledger, I got behind AirSwap, I'm involved in CryptoKitties. I think what I saw in AirSwap is, you know, it's, it's become, Far more obvious to people now than a few years ago that you can look at sort of the evolution of the internet, and every web page had an IP address and it would broadcast itself to a marketplace and giant companies that evolved that basically allowed a marketplace for information. AirSwap to me is a proxy for a company that can create a marketplace for assets. And the notion of a true peer to peer exchange mechanism that allows the transaction uh, any value whether it's a car a, a security a piece of value of any kind to broadcast itself to a digital network and be exchanged in, in a, an atomic swap that's a big idea and they have started solely first in the ethereum world with the rc20 and ethereum based tokens but uh, but they are proving that they're able to do that so the 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 evolution of markets if you think about the stock exchange model you know, we, we still have the New York Stock Exchange, which is a very centralized exchange where somebody has to buy a seat. They have the right then to make a market in a given name, you know, like an IBM or something. And they're the one providing a, a point of liquidity for buyers and sellers of that, of that name. That gets abstracted if you look at the model that is NASDAQ where you have a number of registered broker dealers, be they Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or other big names kind of trading with each other in a in a licensed fashion. If you can move to a fully distributed model that looks a little bit more like eBay, where anyone with a digital asset represented by its string of characters can broadcast that to a marketplace and anyone else can find that through a search mechanism, then you have a very liquid, very large distributed marketplace that is is potentially like super frictionless. And so that's what AirSwap represents to me. They've, they've already launched a peer-to-peer mechanism for, for doing swaps that is search-based, low friction. And they the KYC is going to be kind of automatic. You register once. and then And if you think about the notion of counterparty risk, an atomic swap only occurs if the buyer and seller both have their asset there and the trade happens. If one of them isn't there, the trade just doesn't happen. So so you don't have counterparty risk in this kind of a system. It's done right. So I think this is a natural evolution for the kinds of market structures that we're going to have in our futures for really transacting everything. So I think they they have a, a great team, and I think think about the problem the right way. So I, th- I see a big future for that company.
2: Yeah, I, I think this whole, this whole decentralized financial system with derivatives, decentralized exchange, relayers. There's, that's also been a, a, a huge narrative. Um, there's been a lot of like good podcasts, like Jill Carlson's talked about it a lot. And I think the the biggest question in my mind about that is what is like sort of the fundamental demand? Because if you sort of look at that vertical and you, and you look at the largest, the largest pools of capital and liquidity in the world, like the largest asset managers, they don't, really have a huge incentive to sort of trade in a peer-to-peer manner. Um, Like they're just going to use their, like their, their brokerage firms, like whatever bank they're most comfortable with. So I think that's like one common sort of just like skeptics take of decentralized exchanges and, and a decentralized financial system. But I think the, the best response to that is, is like, it's not about creating a, a product that, is tailored to someone's current to like the world's current behavior. It's about providing that option for non-custodial and sort of more of a trustless financial interaction. Once you sort of have those options available, you can enable access to more people and then you can create new sorts of behavior. So I think that's something I struggle with in the short term. Like, how do we, where will that volume and usage actually come from? But I think once that infrastructure is more robust, like you have like good lending services, like infrastructure, maybe even insurance, that you will have newer and more more radical applications of, and, and we can sort of have a more mature, like decentralized open financial system that, that people talk about.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I, I think they, there are some proxies that people, that aren't, I think, in front of kind of Every general person in the financial markets is, I guess, people are generally familiar with stocks, but they're not necessarily familiar with trading foreign currency or things like credit default swaps. And what's interesting about those two markets is that the vast majority of the trades in those markets, and those are markets that are really big, are over-the-counter markets. So they're basically peer-to-peer already done by telephone still. And not really done through, you know, SEC registered broker dealers, the kind of uh, consumer level. So I think there there is evidence that there's behavior that is dominating in some markets that can be captured in a peer-to-peer system that is like an air swap or the other decentralized exchanges. So I I I do think that. It, I think it's going to happen. I, I don't know when it will happen, but I, I can see why it will. it's a better use case and lower friction. I think that the trustless part is probably the piece that people have to get over because the OTC markets work on sort of, you know, historical old relationships where you kind of know your counterparty. That happens a lot more in Forex than it did in credit default swaps, which is maybe why we had the problem in the end with the credit default swaps. But again, if if everything gets digitized to the point where, things are done in a kind of an atomic swap method where the counterparty risk is taken out of the equation because mathematically the trade won't happen unless the counterparty's there then i think the markets are going to flow freely and flow big
2: yeah no i i the, the last part you touched on the atomic swap sector that's something um like the the decred folks are working on there's been like a lot of development and james presswitch is actually working on on something in that area as well and there's some nice YouTube videos of him sort of explaining the the challenges of, of building these cross chain atomic swap interactions. And it has to do with like how the the sort of the times and like the, yes. the, the lockup times don't, don't really match up. Definitely. Um, but there's some interesting like workarounds and, and solutions that, that people can, can create. But yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that sort of cross chain atomic swap and like just exchanging stuff in a, in a more peer to peer manner is, is definitely a, a critical and, and much needed component of uh, this entire space.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's basically you know the, the automation of custody and escrow and or the making up for gaps in custody and escrow with insurance. If those things are there, then things will happen and then they'll just get faster and faster the, the more robust the digital infrastructure gets.
0: Bill, how have you thought about value accrual as fees come down to zero in, in, in decentralized exchanges or What's your framework for value accrual more broadly?
1: You mean the business model? When you say value accrual, to uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. How do they capture value? Yep. How
1: yeah, yeah, so, money at, at scale. So, so AirSwap today doesn't charge anything, and I think if the model, so so people are always experimenting with models, and they have not yet tried to monetize, but my. My individual instinct, and I, while I'm an equity holder there, and you know, uh, I, I'm not uh, a form. I'm not in the management team, so more you know, kind of an external guide to the company. My view is that once you create a place that has liquidity, the the, the network effects kind of kick in, and you know, so if you were trying to buy and sell a share of IBM your share is going to flow to the New York Stock Exchange because that's where all the other buyers and sellers are. And, you know, there, there used to be other little exchanges like the Pacific Stock Exchange or, you know, what have you, where sometimes they trade like, uh, you know, submarkets of of different things. But in the end, the best buy and the best ask ha- happen at the biggest markets. So once those natural monopolies form, then you can start to introduce some other things that, that capture value for providing value. And in the case of the New York Stock Exchange, it happened by people basically buying a seat. So you'd actually have to pay to be a member to have the right to trade a certain share. And because there were natural monopolies, as long as you were you know, executing okay and took care of reasonable buys and reasonable asks and didn't risk too much for your own balance sheet, you were basically in the flow and could make money so i think that model could evolve if you know if airswap can drive volume they're going to be able to do that that's one area i think the other area is the ability to build products on top so airswap launched its platform but also launched a developer api called fluidity which allows people to build things on top and so you already see a community of developers that are building you know things that can facilitate algorithmic trading or visualization of things on top of the platform or eventually things like derivatives. So I think the ability to capture the flow gives you ways to add value in many other dimensions of the equation that then ultimately you can monetize. So I think their job now is to be really low friction, very, very reliable, and user-friendly for people to build things on top to increase flow and increase value. And I think if they do those right they're gonna to be totally fine
2: yeah no i I think that the the question of value krills similar to similar to this whole like fat protocol is probably the the most pressing question that the industry has t- sort of talked about in the past past like six months and I think it's tough from a from a venture perspective as someone investing in early stage protocols and companies because they're obviously Needs to be an incentive for both investors as well as developers to go out and and do these things, and but oftentimes we're 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 coming to the to, to the realization that that comes directly at the expense of value accrual to the end user, like that, like it'll directly impact their their end user experience in a negative way. And I'm not, and I think that like that's a like we're starting to realize that like maybe like the next decentralized version like protocol that the entire like web 3.0 stack, like maybe, maybe like, it, maybe like a, a venture investor shouldn't own like 30, 40% of that. So I think that's another, I'm Not not even talking about any specific projects, but I think just as like an industry, the narrative sort of shifts so quickly. And I'm, I'm, I, I think we'll over the next year or two, we'll get a better and hopefully more clear idea of where value will actually sort of start to start to go like, will it all just go to the end user um, or will it actually be able to, 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 to sit among, along like some middleware or like base layer or stuff, or will it just all go in, in the form of efficiency to end users?
1: Yeah. You know, it's a little bit like, uh, I think when when social networks first burst on the scene in terms of like, you know, tech venture capital investing, they were a little bit hard to get, you know, so things like Facebook, which were essentially also marketplace businesses where it was really just getting people to join a community and communicate so it became sticky. They didn't really have ways to monetize. And, and people would put things in there to monetize, like you know Zynga with their games or what have you. But over time, because the density of communications became so high and the stickiness became high along with it, There were many ways to monetize. And I think we're talking about the same kind of thing. It's going to be network effects that either happen or not to create the liquidity points where people come with their assets. And if they do, then things will form. And, you know, it's it's a little bit of a history lesson. But if you think about what happened in the creation of what we know today as Wall Street, you know, there literally was a fort at the new Amsterdam fort and there was a wall around the fort and there was a road outside the wall and people basically would show up under the buttonwood tree and they would bring furs or whatever they had to trade. And eventually the, the, the physical products got replaced by pieces of paper representing the physical products. And at one point a bunch of the traders got together and said, let's create a rules so that we know there's sort of, you know, a quality standard coming in for different things. And the New York Stock Exchange formed. And once you had an organized system and a platform, then you could basically port companies onto those things that had products. And companies like, you know, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and all the companies that we know today that make up Wall Street were able to form because they had business models that became replicable and scalable. And we're really just at that point today where we're all standing under that virtual buttonwood tree showing up with our assets trying to figure out where to go. And today the system is still very high friction. When you put together a token company and you try to find a place to, you know, have your token bought and sold because those liquidity points today are in places like Binance or Bitrex or Poloniex or whatever they they, you know, wherever there's volume, those exchanges now charge entry fees of millions of dollars per token just to list, to put your token in front of buyers and sellers. And, you know, I don't know if people are happy with that or not, but it it seems like that that tells you that there's value to points of liquidity. And if you can somehow broaden that value proposition and lower the friction, that eventually there's going to be kind of big liquidity points that have other higher value and more durable value propositions
0: yeah i'm curious bill you know i read in a ama you did on reddit something along the lines of you saying that you you choose investments by first getting excited about a space and then you know looking at all the potential investments in the space and i'm curious if you have done that for for crypto and blockchain what what sort of philosophy is, is under you know has been underlying your your decision making in terms of the very few projects you've gotten involved with you know the spaces being you know mining decentralized exchanges energy you know a couple others and, and what philosophy is, has guided your what you haven't done you know you haven't done any other smart contract platforms like Ethereum or Tezos as far as I'm concerned or as far as I'm aware yeah. uh, and and many other projects and spaces as well.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I think because my background started uh, really around electrons, you know, as a semiconductor chip designer, I was really kind of in the weeds looking at, you know, how do you make things super efficient? And how do you create products that are very horizontal in use? You know, if if you think about the way a semiconductor, somebody that came up during an era where semiconductor manufacturing was part of the equation. You know, in in today's terms, you'd basically put up a billion dollars to build a factory. You'd work on a product, designing it for three or four or five years. And when you spit it out, you're selling a $5 widget. And you have to sell a lot of them. So unless the market is really big and you can see lots and lots and lots of use cases, maybe billions of units over time, they're just not that interesting. And so the commonality across, you know, if you, if you think about the, the fundamental layer of Bitcoin mining or the the P2P uh, nature of of electricity generation and power ledger or the base layer for all asset exchanges on an air swap, those are the kinds of things that get me really excited because they're, they're foundational building blocks to the whole ecosystem. And I missed Ethereum, but uh, I think generally those are the kinds of things that I think are super exciting in that if they work, they can become a very fundamental part of the fabric. There are definitely certain applications that I like, like you know, I did fund CryptoKitties because it, it was really the first broad, broadly used consumer-oriented application, and I think that one that was one where I could see. Uh, I often when I when I fund startups when they're very raw, you're basically trying to get Enough together to get something out there so that you get in the vortex, what I call the vortex of information. Because until you touch the market, you're basically operating blind and you're getting feedback, but you don't really know until you get real feedback on your product what people want. And what CryptoKitties got was they got out there and they're touching a lot of people and people tell them what they want. Because it's a lot easier as a startup to basically list out the 50 things people want and do numbers one through five than it is to sit in a room and try to think of the hundred things people want and hope that you're right when you, when you start to focus on it. But I think it's either you know super foundational or companies that are totally in the flow where the efficiency of how they execute is going to be enhanced in some way in a big space. And then obviously, I think the route to all of those is unless I see a killer team, that I think could win at whatever they're trying to do. I'm just not that interested because in the end, I'm not the warrior. I'm just backing the warrior and giving them, you know, kind of food and water and some, some weapons. How do you think about
0: sort of, you know, the future, the open financial system? How do you think about what should be centralized and what should be decentralized and sort of the, the tensions there? Like where, where does each make the most sense?
1: Yeah, this is a, this is a, wow, this is a, such a big topic I've had a bunch of conversations with two um, notable, I think, I, I guess I call them, one's an economist named Fernando de Soto, and the other is a monetary historian named Neil Ferguson. And this is one of these things that I think you can come up with a lot of scenarios for how you think the system should evolve. But in the end, governments and regulatory bodies associated with those governments will end up defining the pieces that are somewhat centralized and and what's allowed to be not centralized. And I think it's very clear that anything to do with, you know, uh, anti-terrorist money laundering laws, you know, KYC, AML, uh, and or, you know, things related to tax, you know, tax visibility, those are always going to need to be, I wouldn't say necessarily centralized functions, but functions where the information is available to centralized agencies. And I think there's there's a lot of speculation about you know what is the role of something like a federal reserve in a monetary system, you know should should there be or shouldn't there be a, a group of people that has the influence on things like interest rates and reserve requirements to expand and contract the money supply and, and affect the velocity of money with interest rates or not to help smooth or, or enhance growth when needed in an economy. You know, it's, uh, and that, that kind of stuff, it's so subjective and probably it's going to differ from country to country, depending on where they sit in sort of the pecking order of the world's economies. So I, I, I think, the answer to your question is going to depend on, I think, which country and where are they in, you know, in their evolution. And to take the decentralized approach in
2: another direction, like when people are, I'm of the opinion that when people are building these base layer protocols that hopefully have a lot of second layer solutions and, and products that the base layer should sort of be kept as, as decentralized as possible and not have any sort of like, people taking like a certain cut of the, the protocol or, or just like getting rewards or whatever. But once you're on that second layer, that's when you can start to sort of experiment with, with innovative funding mechanisms, like innovating product designs. And that's when those solutions can become more, more centralized. Like, like a great example of this is Tari. So like Tari is a, is a second layer sidechain based on top of Monero, built on top of Monero and it uses the Monero as like the base chain. So as long as like the end user has optionality between the base chain as, and the second layer solution, then it's okay if some of the higher level things are a little more centralized and a little more focused on like one thing. But the, 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 the building ground and like the base of the, the ecosystem should be kept as rent free as possible.
1: And that model, I think that model does make sense. And the proxy for that already exists in the, in the networking world. So, you know, TCP IP as a protocol doesn't really make money per se, but people that have built applications on top of it that make it useful, they can get paid for the value they create. And it allows fragmentation and very heavy centralization at the endpoint of things built on top of it. And so I think there's there's no reason to think that that model wouldn't work in the protocol world and applications layers on top of cryptocurrencies either.
0: You know, I'm curious that there's a debate whether how much of, you know, the history of money versus the history of technology is, is helpful to understand how, how cryptocurrencies will will evolve over time. Now, you're both a student of money and a student of history. Yes. Can you talk about where you see... Like us learning the most from in terms of how to make how to make predictions.
1: Yeah, well, I'll say I guess I'll I'll start with my viewpoint first, and then because I, I again this is another area where there's a lot of like anything I I can think of is going to be speculative. But my I, I'll start from kind of a micro standpoint in that when I first was exposed to the concept of an ICO, I was just baffled. I I was trained for so many decades as a as venture capital investor that when I wrote a check, I received a piece of ownership of something that had rights. And, you know, you'd buy shares of stock whether they were public stocks or private stocks, but you had, you know, a kind of a, an influence with the other shareholders on what would happen. (coughs) This model seemed to have evolved pretty well in the United States over the last, you know, kind of decades, several decades in the tech world in particular. So, so when I started to first hear about ICOs they just didn't make sense to me it seemed like you know walking into a casino and buying a poker chip and expecting that if i bought it for a buck that maybe somebody would buy the same poker chip for me for 2 bucks and it just didn't make any sense but they kept happening and as I started to rationalize maybe why I started to think, you know, if you think about network related businesses or, you know, like cryptocurrencies are, or even social network, or marketplace type businesses, the evolution of what you buy in terms of a proxy for ownership has also changed in the, in the eighties and nineties or the eighties and early nineties. The tech industry, if you if you had an IPO in the tech industry and you sold shares, generally speaking, the companies had to have profits. And then and things were measured on PE ratios. And then over time, there were enough winners that occurred over you know, long periods of time that people started to take more risk. And you could get companies public that had no earnings and they were measured on price to sales. And eventually you had the formation of very powerful network. Related businesses like Google and Facebook, where you bought shares, they might not have been profitable when you first bought them, and they also didn't really have voting rights because they might have been restricted and the, and the you know the ultimate example of that was Snapchat. you know you had some revenue, definitely no earnings, and no voting rights and that that security out there looks a lot like those tokens that we see on the token market. So I started to think, you know what, it's all kind of converging. So that's at a micro level. So I think, you know, we're we're in a period now where people are basically buying a piece of a community. If you think about what an ICO is, it's a it's the economic alignment of interest across a group of people that are involved in a community of belief. Whether it's a product belief or a religious belief or whatever it is, people are willing to trade value in that community with other community members because they believe. And that's been kind of history of man. If you, if you were to read Neil Ferguson's book, the ascent of money, that's a great read because it takes you across the spectrum of value exchange from the dawn of civilization, pebbles and shells and feathers all the way through to credit default swaps. And you'll see that where history is sort of, it's always rhyming and the things that we see today are no different than things that have happened throughout human history. When you look at the formation of the uh, colonies of the United States, when people got off boats and they stepped on the forests of New England and drew lines around forests to say one was New York and another was Connecticut and one was Virginia, each one of the, the, the states or colonies did their own ICO. They all issued their own currency. And that's nothing new. You know, so I think we're, we're basically in these, you know, series of repeat behavior patterns that uh, culminate in, you know, what we all live in a capitalist economy, of course, and the history of capitalism, it's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's necessarily, it's beautiful at times, but it's subject to massive resets. And I think we're starting to see one of those periods now where the disparity of wealth is producing all kinds of, you know, social division. And the the environment, the the toxic environment we're in is allowing the kind of uh, elected officials that are in office to get into office that play up that divide. And that's nothing new either. You know, so I think we're we're going through uh, a, a, a big macro cycle as well that. I don't know where. So this goes back to your original question. Where does it all end? I don't know. But I'm just glad that I'm long a bunch of Bitcoin. <laughs> because if the system ever really breaks, you know, anyone holding Bitcoin, they're not going to be happy, but they're going to feel a little safer than if they hadn't held Bitcoin. Right. You know, with that in mind, I want to
0: close on sort of two two last questions. One is, you, know, you hinted at it earlier when you're talking about the Federal Reserve, but there's been sort of a, a, a you know, resurgence of, Austrian economics, which, which is you know, largely been somewhat friend, you know, more, more on the libertarian side of, hey, fixed money supply, yeah, basically the government, you know, separation of, of money and state. And I'm curious if you are sympathetic to that, that resurgence, or are you more in the middle? You, you mentioned Ron you Soto, I'm curious, and you mentioned Alan Greenspan, I'm curious, uh, you know, I don't think Greenspan or Milton Friedman would have, would, would have understood it, or would have sympathized as much, given their from a perspective on, on that. And then the second question is, in, this, in closing, how do you think do you, in the future, you know, five years out, 10 years out, do you predict a world with a few major currencies? What one major currency? How do you think Bitcoin, Ethereum plays out? How do you think it all, it, it all shakes out in terms of who wins?
1: Sure. I, I do. I, yeah, I do think about this actually probably more than I should. So I think what's going to happen. Okay. So, so I'm going to talk about debt first. And, um, you know, if you think about, I, I just saw this article in the FT that basically showed the level of world debt today. If you include government debt, corporate debt, personal debt, student loan debt, it's something like $275 trillion. And it's 3.18 times the size of the world GDP. And it's growing at $25 trillion a year. Trillion. You know, so, so we're adding like $2 trillion a month. Or you know, kind of. I think it's eight hundred billion dollars a day, if I'm not mistaken. But it's it's a lot, you know. And and if you think about the size and the uh, of of that increase of debt load, which is accelerating, by the way. So the debt load is growing faster than GDP is growing by a lot, by like two and a half x. So so if we're adding you know, $2 trillion a month of debt. And you think about the number of decades and people and products and sales and supply chain and all the jobs created by a company like Apple that's worth a trillion dollars. And then and that's like the exception. And if you think about the value of a unicorn at 1 billion and you need a 1,000 of those to get to a, to a trillion, we're basically printing that size of economic activity Apple and a thousand other unicorns every single month at a rate faster, far faster than the underlying economy supporting that debt can grow. Can that go on forever? I don't think so. You know, so, so the Federal Reserve and, and entities like that, they are totally useful in stimulating growth and providing kind of a platform to keep things from getting so cyclical that they're, you know, kind of the populations are subject to massive collapses every 10 years and social unrest and war and revolution and all that. But you can only prolong that kind of stuff for so long because humans are humans. And I'm not predicting that we're going to go into some like, you know, total world chaos thing with lots of warring and all that anytime soon. But I think where the currency falls. in in that equation is I think Bitcoin, undeniably, in my opinion, has a role that's sort of like gold. It's It's something that to the modern digital people, they understand in the same way that humans have understood gold for thousands and thousands of years. And so I think it's something that people can fall back on if things, you know, get, get a little choppy. But it's also, I think, because it's digital, it it is a framework upon which people can build. It's not as user-friendly as other stuff. So I think that's where you, where Ethereum and the other things fall into place. In in terms of your question on, you know, is there going to be one currency? I, I think we're in a world of increasing fragmentation. And I think we'll have these underlying layers of sort of uh, things that you'll fall back on, like a Bitcoin. But I think what you see in the ICOs is because the nature of work has changed so much if you think about what your not your your parents and your grandparents probably all worked for quote big companies that were a product of the industrial revolution where you know for a short period of time because capital and capital assets because of petroleum and the industrial revolution created big, big companies. They were sort of promised lifelong employment and specialization of labor was high for the last two generations. But for every generation preceding that, for thousands and thousands of years, the nature of work was very fragmented and very inspiration based. You know, in the morning you might, you know, pick berries, in the afternoon you might hunt and you might do it with different people at every time of the day. You know, so what you did as your job changed every hour. And it changed based on what you wanted to do in a flexible fabric where you could assemble and disassemble and reassemble with different people for different tasks. It was only two generations in the industrial revolution where people were kind of locked up in boxes. And what software has done is it's put people back into the flexible fabric where I now can be a member of 15 or 20 or 30 different communities of interest and work on different things at any time of the day. And all the young people I know don't have one job. They work on four or five jobs. That wasn't the case five years ago or, t- or maybe 15 or 20 years ago. So I think we're basically because of software reverting to the norm of what humans have been for hundreds of thousands of years. And we're going to look back and say, wow, this industrial revolution and the dollar dominance and the petrodollar that went with it, that was like a 40 year experiment. And we're going to go back to the the era that we were in for all of time where there's multiple communities of interest, multiple currencies, and there's a fallback if things go wrong, which is Bitcoin. On that note, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic, fantastic episode. You're very welcome.
2: Thanks for having us, It It's a pleasure
0: being here. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more
1: about what you're up to. Okay, I'm going to hit stop right now.